good time in prayer and singing and praising the Lord. And now uh, we're going to get into the Word. As, uh, as Kevin mentioned, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, so you can go ahead and turn there, and we'll get into the text in just a minute. And I think he mentioned, and Benji mentioned, this, uh, this idea. We titled the series Wedge, and uh, talking a little bit about divisions. And so to, to kind of help us get ready to get into the text for today, I, I thought, let's think about wedges. Like, what is it? Now, Kimberly just said that she can't help but hear that and think wedgie. That's actually not what we're talking about today. We're talking about a wedge. So let, let's think about that. A wedge is a, is a tool, actually. Um, it's a classical machine, I think it's considered like a simple machine, and it's shaped in such a way as to move things based upon its movement. So I've got a picture here, I think, uh, coming up, show you a picture of a wedge, and the way it works is you've got force, an input force that's happening on the wider end of the wedge, and that's pushing that down into the smaller end of the wedge, and the work that it does is based upon the angles of uh, its kind of side panels there. And so, as you can imagine, the, the force that's pushing in is pushing other things apart. So it's interesting how it takes that force and redirects it. The further it uh, penetrates, the greater the separation. Now, you've used wedges probably most of your life. Some of them may be a little bit surprising. We think of the, the log splitter, right? The axe or the wedge that you're pounding into a log, but uh, scissors uh, have a wedge as part of them. Knives have a wedge. They operate that same way. A shim, when you're setting a window or a door, uh, uses that same principle. As you apply force inward, it is pushing outward to secure a window and a door. So wedges are great, really, really helpful. And uh, useful when you're really trying to separate something, especially something that's inanimate. But here's the deal about wedges. They are the worst when they are put to work in the church. The absolute worst. They're destructive. They're divisive. And they completely contradict all that uh, God intends for his people now, wedges in the church aren't made of steel or stone or any other kind of material like that. We're obviously talking about something figurative, but here's what they tend to look like. They often kind of come in the form of opinions or attitudes, allegiances, or customs that people have. And, uh, you know, a lot of times these wedges are hard to see until the damage has already been done. I wonder how many of you have experienced a split of some kind. Like, let's not even talk about a church yet. Let's just think about personally. You've probably experienced a relational split of some kind. Maybe it was a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe a friend or a roommate. Perhaps a colleague. Perhaps even a spouse. And here's what I have found in those kinds of situations there's always at least one thing and probably multiple things that create the division to begin with. And most of the people can't see those on the front end, but they are crystal clear when you look back. Hindsight's 2020, right? 
And I haven't met anybody yet who entered into a relationship of some kind intending to split, right? You've got the couple who stand at the altar and they say, I do, never thinking in a million years that they're going to be in a courtroom saying, I'm out. But it happens all the time, doesn't it? So, wouldn't it be great if we could see those wedges ahead of time and certainly acknowledge that they're there and and do something about that? That could save a lot of heartache, save a lot of destruction and loss. So, as we think about the church, uh, we want to really invite God to show us where there might be wedges lurking in our community of faith. And we're not unique. There's churches all over the world, and those churches are full of people, and those people are sinful, and so, you know, stuff happens. But what a great opportunity we have to learn from Paul and the church in Corinth how they dealt with the division that had occurred in their church. Now, last week, if you didn't catch it, uh, Jeff actually gave us a backdrop, um, most of which came from Acts 18. That's where we see Paul going to Corinth to start the church. And we learned a lot about that city. It's a pretty rough and tumble kind of place. Pretty surprising that a church would even make it there, but it sure did. Paul started it. He was there for 18 months getting it established, and then he moved on. After being gone for a while, Paul got word that that church was struggling in some ways. And so he writes a letter back, uh, that's 1 Corinthians in 55 AD, and he's basically addressing the things that he had become aware of. He's helping that church with some issues around division. So we now get to sit and uh, read this letter together and learn from it. Uh, I think Jeff mentioned that what we're going to do is break up the book because it really lends itself to this into various segments that focus on a variety of subjects. And so the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians deal with division, a number of aspects related to that, but that's the big idea. So that's uh, why we called it Wedge. So let's start with, let's just jump into the text here. Paul is checking in with Corinth and seeing how they're doing. And he begins his letter, much like uh, some of the other letters that he wrote. Um, Those are also called epistles. Um, So there are a number of epistles or letters that Paul wrote to churches throughout uh, the Middle East there. And uh, here's how he begins. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul um, was accustomed to introducing himself uh, so they know who the letter's coming from. But it is interesting that he identifies himself as being called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now he's not just playing a power card here. He's actually establishing the authority that he has to say what he's going to be saying. See, he knows where he's going with this letter. And in this case, he's really going to have to say some tough things to these folks. So he wants to make it very clear on the front end that the authority he has to say these things is not his own. He didn't just vote for himself and take charge. But he's saying, the Lord put me in the position that I'm in so that I could lead you in the way that you're going to be led as we go through this letter. 
So he establishes his authority. He mentions Sosthenes there, and we're not exactly sure who he is, but most likely he's sort of like a secretary, and Paul is dictating this letter to him, and he is writing as they go. So then Paul shifts from uh, introducing himself to a greeting. And once again, you're going to see some similarities with this greeting to greetings in some of the other letters. But let's go ahead and read through it here. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've been reading ahead. We asked you to go ahead and, and uh, maybe spend some time throughout the week uh, reading through these six chapters. And, and truly, if you'll do that, you'll be amazed at what you'll notice as you're going along. And the first thing that you might notice is how Paul is subtly anticipating some of the directions that he's going to go in the six chapters we're going to be studying. Notice, if you go back into the text here, he calls them the church. The Greek word there is ekklesia, and that's the called out ones. So Paul was not only called to be an apostle, which is speaking to God's intentions, but they have been called as well. It also says they've been sanctified. Now, that word is literally set apart. Now, you've heard sanctified, and we've talked about it as this progressive uh, period of growth over the course of life after you have a relationship with God. But this reference here is actually more positional. He's actually saying that you have been set apart to God. You're His. And that's a permanent thing. That's not a progressive thing. It's positional. But then not only are you sanctified, you've been called, there's that word again, to be saints. That's where he picks up the progressive idea of sanctification. That they're going to actually work out this position that they have in Christ over time in their conduct. So Paul's establishing the identity of this church, but here's where I want to really focus. Notice at the beginning he says, the church of God is in Corinth. Now that's no mistake. If you look at some of the other letters, he phrases them a little bit differently. But the emphasis is the church of God, not the Corinthian church. It's really a matter of possession. See, the Corinthians, they were really big on themselves. And they had lots of grand ideas about the way things ought to be. And that wasn't just in the church. That was the culture of Corinth, as we learned last week. So Paul seems to be reminding them that this is God's church, not your church. Uh, Ben Witherington says this, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. And that certainly had made its way into the church. Leon Morris says the church at Corinth was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. So Paul is beginning to sort of set the stage here to confront them, certainly with great love and care, but he's trying to help them realign their perspective based upon the work that God has already done, having set them apart and established them as a church. He mentions two necessary provisions that they're going to need to keep in mind as they go forward and respond 
to his letter. He mentions grace and peace. And what a great reminder for all of us that this Christian life, uh, even when we're confronted with hard things, we don't ever get away from our need for grace. Uh, I read this uh, this week as as a description of grace. God's unending goodness toward his chosen people. His loyal, abiding love that translates into his faithfulness despite our disobedience. That's grace. Two words, unmerited favor. It's what God does for you and gives to you which you do not deserve, but for which you can always give thanks. It's a beautiful blessing. So he's getting them set to now... Uh, kind of wade into this conversation around the division. One last thing he does before addressing some of the issues that are at hand, he uh, gives thanks. And that might seem a little bit strange. Some of the other letters that he sends to other churches, they seem to be doing better. But Corinth, you might think, I'm not, I'm not sure there's a whole lot there that Paul can say thanks for. Like he is really having to correct a lot of problems. But he practices the very thing that he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He wrote there, give thanks in all circumstances. So he's going to do that even with Corinth. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He's taking them back to those days when Paul was there in this church was born. Verse 5, that in every way you are enriched in him, that is in Christ, in all speech and in all knowledge. Some beautiful evidence of the activity of God in your midst. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul isn't necessarily giving a lot of thanks for what the Corinthians are currently doing. He is giving thanks for the evidence of God's benevolent activity that he has seen and expects to see again. So that's pretty awesome. That's pretty cool that he's doing that. He is highlighting that um, they were genuinely saved. These are Christians. They're They're not faking it. He really saw evidence of God's work in their life. He saw change in their behavior, in their speech, how they related to one another. He saw evidence of the fruit of the Spirit and the spiritual gifts that God gives to his people and to his church. So all that to say, the birth was real. It was legitimate. But now they're having problems. It actually reminded me of uh, the birth of our third child, Bo. And uh, so we've got two. We've kind of been through all of that pregnancy and delivery. And we kind of know a little bit about what to expect. And so here comes Bo. Great delivery, everything goes well, we head home, and then after, I want to say a week or two, we began to, to see that Bo really wasn't doing as well as we thought he should. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, failure to thrive? Heard of that? So, 
Bo started great. But then we noticed that he wasn't thriving. He wasn't growing. He wasn't gaining weight. We thought something's wrong. So we went to the doctor and we said, hey, we're scared. We're worried about him. Is he going to be okay? And it was really just a matter of supplementing uh, his nutritional intake so that he could thrive. And you know what? Sure enough, we made those adjustments and Bo did great. Grew like a weed. Now he's like 7'5". But I, I think that's what's happening here with this church. They had a great birth. It was beautiful. It was everything anybody would have hoped for, including Paul. But now they're having a failure to thrive, and they need to figure out what's going on because they're headed in a really, really bad direction. So Paul begins to diagnose their problem, and he begins that in verse 10. So let's look there. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So we've got division here. He's identifying it, and we're going to get more specific, but he lays out the solution first and then the problem. So let's start with the problem in verse 11. Two key words there, quarreling and uh, divisions actually points back to verse 10. That word quarreling is like strife, discord, rivalry, and it's different than just straight conflict. If you're in a relationship you just better get ready. You're going to have conflict, right? That's just a part of living in a broken world, two sinful people. That just happens. But this is much more than that. This is actually two people or more squaring off against one another, and it's winner take all. They're out for blood. And and Paul's saying that, that can't happen in the church. The church was never meant to be that way. Um, The word division, back in uh, verse 10, that's literally a picture of tearing a garment or a crack in stone. It's, It's significant, and it's very difficult to get over. So that's the problem, quarrels and divisions. Then he goes a step further, and he says, I'm going to tell you exactly how this is going down. It's tribalism in the church. And it seems strange, but I think you'll see in a moment that this is pretty common. So they're saying like, so one little group over here, they're like, we follow Paul. You know, he was the founder of the church, and you ought to follow your founder. So, so we're for Paul. He's our guy. And then there's another group over here that they say, we follow Apollos. Now, Apollos was, uh, kind of came behind Paul He actually got some instruction from Aquila and Priscilla, sharpened his message, but he was a great communicator, man. He was slick and smooth. He could just captivate an audience with every word. 
And so you had a group of people in the church that they're like, we love Apollos, man. We could just sit and listen to him all day long. He's, he's just a little more eloquent than Paul is. So we follow Apollos. And then you had another group. Now, we don't even know if Peter went to Corinth. I'm, I'm sure he probably did at some point or another. But, but, you know, Peter's just a legend. I mean, he was with Jesus, one of the 12. He saw it all. He experienced it all. Like, he is the man. And so you had some people that were probably saying, well, that's the guy to follow. We follow Cephas. And then you had this other group. And they're like, well, we follow Jesus. How about that? Like, is that the Jesus juke? Is that what that's called? Now, it sounds like, well, you probably ought to be in that club, right? Like, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. Well, here's, here's what that means. That actually means not, I've surrendered my life to Christ. He's my Lord, and I just want to obey everything that he says for me to do and and walk in fellowship with him. No, here's what it means. I follow Jesus, and so I don't need anyone. I don't need a church. I don't need a pastor. I don't need a small group. I don't need counsel, wisdom. I don't need anything from anybody. It's just me and Jesus. Me and Jesus. We go everywhere together. We do everything together. He's all I need. Which means if any of you need more than that, too bad for you. See, it's an air of superiority. And, it's, and it kind of contradicts the whole idea that Jesus talks about living in community. <laughs> needing the church. Needing pastors and leaders and the scriptures and all this other kind of stuff. So really, all of these uh, ideas here are rooted in uh, this tribalism, this air of superiority, and it's, uh, it's really like fame by association. So what it really means is, this isn't so much about the people that they claim, it's about what those people say about them. Or make it look like about them, right? They're really something. Because I follow Paul, and that says a whole lot about me. I follow Apollos, and man, that really says something about me. It's all about them. So Paul is putting his finger on the, uh, on the wedge of celebrityism, tribalism. Does that sound at all familiar in our day? Like, who are the celebrities that we kind of gather around? We kind of like to drop their names every once in a while or throw out a quote or two or maybe pass along a video. And again, I, I, it's not all bad. It's just bad when that begins to take on a level of significance related to our identity that it was never meant to have when it puts us over others. Tribalism is toxic when it turns rival tribes into enemies. And you can see it. You can see it certainly on social media and other places where uh, we become very critical and uh, condescending toward one another simply because we might uh, run with a different tribe. So we need to be super careful about that. Paul offers a solution, and that is to mend what is torn. He actually uses a beautiful word here when he says he wants us to be united. Uh, It literally is this picture of mending torn nets, putting them back together 
the way they were intended to be from the beginning. He says, I want you all to agree. And he's not talking about uniformity here. He, it literally means to say the same thing. And what he means is to say the same thing about the thing that matters. So you can have disagreement. You can have different viewpoints on the lesser issues of life. But when it comes to the essentials, like the deity of Christ, the truth of God's word, the way of salvation, some of those kinds of things, well, we gotta, we gotta agree on those things. Outside of that, there's a lot of room. Perhaps you've heard this statement before. It's so helpful when it comes to mending what is torn and dealing with wedges. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. That means latitude, room. We can agree to disagree. And then in all things, charity. Like be loving toward one another. Not condescending, not critical, not harsh, but leave room for the diversity in the body of Christ. So important if we're to avoid the division that the Corinthians experienced. Here's the reality. Christian community is easily fractured, isn't it? Has anybody in here ever gotten their feelings hurt by somebody in the church? Ever? Yeah. It happens, doesn't it? And you know what? You have hurt somebody's feelings in the church. At some point or another, you've let somebody down. You've dropped the ball, disappointed, something along those lines. So we're all guilty of that. And that can fracture the church, but it doesn't have to stay that way. Here's the deal. The gospel is the glue. The gospel is the glue. That's what helps us mend what is torn and broken. And that's where Paul finishes this segment, beginning in verse 13. He asks some questions with some sarcastic kind of flair, but he's really trying to wake them up and get their attention. He asks in verse 13, is Christ divided? Like, if, if Christ established this church, if it's his, is it divided? Does he love some people in the church more than others? Does Jesus play favorites in the church? Was Paul crucified for you? Whoever that celebrity is that you follow around and sing their praises and tweet their stuff, like, did they die for you? Did they shed their blood so that you could be forgiven? Was it in their name that you were baptized? See, these questions, they're sobering, aren't they? It's it's a wake-up call to go, where have I really placed my hope and trust? Is it in earthly things or is it in Christ. Paul says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. That's a little surprising. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. He's avoiding uh, being celebritized as a baptizer, right? And then he sort of wakes up, oh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. I love that. It's like, I wish I could have just been there and seen Paul just going, just keep moving. Go to verse, go to verse 16. Uh, <laughs> now, he's not uh, diminishing the significance of baptism. He's actually just putting it in its right place. 
He's trying to say that rather than the church, those people that are yelling for their celebrity leaders or their celebrity baptizers, he goes, rather than focusing on the person who did it, why wouldn't you focus on what it was actually representing? Because baptism points to death, burial, and resurrection, conversion, life in Christ. Not in Paul, not in Apollos, not in anybody, but Christ. He's saying you've got to reorient your focus there and see baptism for what it really is. It's an opportunity for all of us to see, oh, this is the body of Christ. This is the body that Christ prayed would be one. And they've shared in that thing together. So, Paul would say, keep the main thing the main thing. And that's exactly what he is doing here. He is bringing them back to focus on Christ. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So, he recognizes that baptism doesn't save, the gospel saves. By grace, through faith, not as a result of works. He's like, that's the message, and we got to preach the gospel. And those who believe, they need to be baptized. But even if they weren't baptized, that's not the issue. There's a matter of obedience there. We can work on that, but that's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with salvation conversion, the purpose of the church. The church is meant to preach the gospel. And he says, not with eloquent wisdom. Remember again, the Corinthians are all about saying everything in a beautiful flowery language that has everybody captivated. He's saying, I'm, I'm not going after that. In fact, if my focus is on saying it perfectly... I might actually lead people to pay more attention to the way I said it than to what I said. Like We got to get the message, the content, and just being able to say things really well doesn't mean it's true. So we actually ought to be fairly careful about being sucked into believing something, thinking something, accepting something simply because it was said so well. We ought to be a lot more discerning than that. So the gospel is the main thing. It alone levels the playing field for all of humanity in terms of our sinfulness and our significance. That's the thing that brings us back to the truth that we love because he first loved us. We forgive as we have been forgiven. We consider others more important than ourselves because that's what our Savior did when he laid down his life on the cross. That's the gospel. And that's the difference that it makes in our lives. The gospel message isn't in need of enhancement, just faithful delivery. The gospel is not in need of enhancement. We don't need to dress it up. We just need to faithfully deliver it. And in every way imaginable, in word and in deed, every possible way we can do it. I love uh, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Again, thinking about that culture and their fascination with 
language. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Love that. It's a great perspective. It's also been said this way. We, that is in the body of Christ, those who have been saved, we are nobodies telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Isn't that awesome? That's who we are. Nothing fancy. Nothing slick. Just the truth. Shared by grace. I'll wrap up with this. Chuck Swindoll, as he uh, summarized this segment, these 17 verses, here's, uh, here's what he had to say. When we take our focus off Christ, and I might put in parentheses there, and the gospel, our gaze necessarily fixes on something else. Selfish pursuits, personal opinions, marginal issues, or favorite personalities, to name a few. This misplaced focus leads to divisions. Divisions lead to quarrels. Quarrels bring cliques. And cliques are just platoons awaiting orders to strike. In other words, when church members fail to focus fully on Christ and the gospel, the result will be controversy and conflict. The result will be a wedge. And it will destroy any potential that a church has to make an impact for Christ if it goes undetected and unaddressed. So here's what I want to ask you to do this morning in response to this message. We're just getting started. Great, great stuff to think about and receive and, and uh, reflect upon. So I want to ask you, if you would, this morning, just before the Lord to just say, what is it that I might need to see today that I didn't see before I came in here today? Or what might there be that I have diminished or uh, kind of neglected that I really need to give some attention to? Something that might actually bring about division or conflict um, in an inappropriate sort of way. So let me just give you a minute to do that. And uh, here's the deal. Go back to what Paul said. Man, there is grace upon grace. Much better for you to acknowledge that and begin to address it than to just let it go and uh, to bring about division. So ask the Lord uh, some of those questions, if you would.